Uh, I was going to, as I'm planning out the rest of Acts and sort of changing it, sometimes I plan a bigger section and then I get to it and it becomes really small. And so this morning we're just going to look at the first seven verses of uh, this chapter in Acts. So it'll be uh, just a shorter section, but it's really significant as we think about what we believe and what we have faith in. And then in that belief and that faith, what is the great hope of the result of that? In our uh, media, social media overwhelmed world, um, imagine in your social media, you see constant quotes of things that people put on their Facebook wall or um, uh, Pinterest is probably more popular with some fancy design. But we live with all of these quotes, um, quotes like this, if If you look to others for fulfillment, you'll never be truly fulfilled. Nothing is more fulfilling than living a life of purpose. Discover and fulfill your purpose for a living. Happiness is a decision. Once you choose hope, anything is possible. We can change our lives. We can do, have, and be exactly exactly what we wish. Live the life you always wanted to live. Avoid criticizing others and concentrate on fulfilling your dreams. Uh, We have, and as we read these quotes, there's something in everyone here that we read some of them and we think, yeah, like, that's great. I want to, like, impress that in my life and I want that to transform me. But as we step back and really try to understand what does it mean to have a fulfilling life, uh, we see that uh, these aren't really as valuable as we think they are. It's almost like junk food and sugar, uh, which in the moment is very pleasing, but really there's not really any significance to them. And these sound comforting at some level and worthwhile, but they really are futile. And then we can quote, you too, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. As sort of in the list of quotes, you realize like, yeah, none of them really give me the substance that I need as a human being. Here in the book of Acts in chapter 19, we have uh, Paul's third missionary journey. And as he has gone on his third journey, he's experienced in prison and beating and being stoned, but also being cared for by friends. And he continues because God's calling is on his life, and he knows the joy of seeing the Word of God increase. And even more simply, He knows the pleasure of knowing God. That is what drives him. It is not as if he wakes up and uh, gets one of these quotes, uh, just choose to be happy and you'll be fulfilled, and then that that drives him uh, through the midst of beatings and abuse and imprisonment. He has something richer and more fulfilling and more significant that he is resting in. So let me read the first seven verses of Acts 19. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance 
telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began, they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Paul here is in um, Ephesus, and he comes upon a group of uh, 12 or so men, and they're called disciples. But as we see how Paul interacts with them, we realize there's a serious problem with what they believe, with what their hope is in. These men cause Paul some uh, significant concern in what they believe. Um, They're called disciples. Uh, We could call them uh, apparent disciples or assumed disciples as we look at this. Paul really questions what they believe, enough so that he verbally questions them and challenges them, and he does this lovingly so they don't invest their life in something that will not hold them. So Paul found these assumed disciples who had not heard of the Holy Spirit, were not baptized with the baptism of redemption, only John's baptism of repentance. John's baptism was to look forward to the coming Messiah. Uh, Christian baptism is to look backward at the fulfillment and perfection of the work of Christ. At first, as Paul interacts with them, he gives them the benefit of the doubt, which really we can say, Paul, at least at this point, because we've seen it points in Acts, at this point, Paul shows some tact. He shows some like social norms of let's be nice to these people. Let me ask them some questions. Other points, he just jumps in and um, doesn't show any tact. But Paul is concerned because the, the gospel they believe is not the gospel of Jesus. What they had faith in was not what God calls people to have faith in. And if, we, if you understand uh, John the Baptist who came before Jesus and his purpose was not to gather followers, his purpose was to point people to Jesus. But these men lacked the knowledge of the Holy Spirit, which is interesting because the Holy Spirit is, is active throughout the Old Testament. And as John would baptize, he would say, uh, there's one coming after me who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. There's one coming after me who is greater. But somehow, these uh, these men have missed that. And they're content with the baptism of John. And we see that their uh, theological understanding of salvation and redemption is greatly flawed. So as we look through this, I want to give you three options. Um, you can choose to land at any three. Do you remember being in school and your teacher would give you, like, let me give you three options, and you always knew that the third one was always right. And that's what the teacher believed, and that's what you need to believe. You can land at any three of these, but I think uh, as we look at this passage, there's something confusing about this because they're called disciples, but yet Paul says they're not disciples because they believe something different, and then they're baptized. So one option is that they were disciples of John the Baptist, not Jesus. That in Luke's wording of uh, these disciples, what Luke meant was that they were followers of John the Baptist only. 
Um, the problem with that is Luke understands that that would create confusion, and he would have made it simpler for everyone to understand. The second option is a little more um, is a little bit longer. Second option is these men only lacked the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And in some Christian circles, this is where they get the idea of a second blessing, where you, you can be a Christian, but do you have the Holy Spirit? And that will, that will come, and when that comes upon you, then you have these other gifts. Somehow a person could be a Christian and not have the Holy Spirit. Which, first of all, this is a foreign idea in the Bible. Uh, For someone to be a Christian, to have faith in Jesus, means you have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is full and with you and upon you. But we also need to understand that there were disciples before Pentecost, before this action that we read about in Acts 2 of the Holy Spirit coming down in a dramatic way, there were believers before that. Uh, There were believers in the Old Testament that believed on the great work of the coming Messiah. So any second blessing has to fit this redemptive historical nature of where Pentecost falls. So you have uh, the Old Testament, and then you have uh, the Holy Spirit coming upon believers in a new way, but they were believers before that, they're Christians before that, and then they're Christians after that. When the Spirit was present in a new way to believers, the experience of this uh, is the gospel going out. This is, Acts, this is the outline of Acts. Gospel goes to Jerusalem and to all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the pattern of the book of Acts. This is the story that Luke is telling. Any second blessing is uh, intimately tied to the redemptive historical nature of Pentecost. So if someone has the idea of of a second blessing, we, as you read the Scripture, you need to see that it fits in this time of redemptive history, that the Holy Spirit is coming and there's Pentecost, and then there's people, there's all these mini Pentecosts in the book of Acts. Some of them have... Um, miraculous gifts. There are speaking in tongues and there's prophecy. Uh, Some of them don't. And so it's not a constant that's tied together. If you have faith in Jesus, you have the Spirit. This is a simple understanding of the Spirit's role in salvation. If you believe, that is because the Spirit has done work within you. Speaking in tongues and prophecy, as it is here in Acts, uh, was not a regular event at in all the baptisms in Acts. This was, not a, uh, this was not something that happened every time someone was baptized. Not with Ethiopian, not with Lydia and her household, not with the Philippian jailer and his household. And the tongues that were present at Pentecost were um, actually other languages, and they were in interpreted, and people from other uh, nationalities that spoke different languages heard people prophesying, meaning telling good truths about Jesus, prophesying the goodness of God, so God is glorified. 
So this idea of prophecy conveys the idea of glorifying God in the name, glorifying the name of God and sharing the message of Jesus. And so some people land at that, that uh, what's happening here is this idea of a second blessing. And so they would question Christians from this one text and say, you could be a Christian, but do you have the second blessing? But by doing that, you don't look at the redemptive history of Scripture, of what's happening in the 30 years of the book of Acts. Okay, now here's the third one. This is where I land. But understand, this is a confusing section of Scripture. Uh, These men were not people of faith at all in Jesus. They only knew John and his uh, baptism of repentance, and they somehow missed John's message of Jesus is coming. Because that's what, made, that's, what make, that's what made John's baptism and ministry significant, was that the Messiah was really coming. This is really an extension of Pentecost, of uh, if they had not heard of the Spirit, uh, we could assume, like Paul did, that they had not heard the whole gospel. They didn't know the perfect life of Jesus, his substitutionary death, and his resurrection on their behalf. They probably missed all of that too. These are the key doctrines of the Christian faith. What's interesting is Apollos, at the end of chapter 18, Apollos sort of has the same thing with John's baptism, but what happens with Apollos is he is taught, it says in 25, taught accurately the things concerning Jesus though he knew only the baptism of John. He was taught who, what these baptisms actually meant and who they really pointed to, the cleansing and perfect work of Jesus. So we read of Apollos in 18, uh, chapter 18, 25, we read of him having received this teaching, but not just the baptism of John, but the message of the one who is to come after John, which is Jesus. And so I think we can correctly land at these men uh, who received John's baptism. Were, it was never explained to them what the, what the gospel really is. And so they had faith in something completely different. They didn't have faith in Jesus. They had faith in the, in the baptism of John the Baptist. And probably some other things. And you read through this chapter, you see how uh, people try to gather uh, things from their culture and to carry them into their Christianity and into the gospel and say, it's the gospel, it's Jesus, and we do all these things, which maybe makes it a lot more exciting or more attractive. Instead of seeing it's Jesus alone. So these 12 really didn't hear the full message of John. Paul was able to discern the error of their belief and correct them uh, and direct them to the truth about Jesus. And Paul, because he was very patient, (laughs) at this point, he actually had a conversation with them. And he invested in time and energy uh, so to really understand what they believed. This was significant enough to Paul, that he stopped to address them with tact, with really good questions, 
so they could also question their own belief, which is dramatically different than what we usually do when we hear people that believe in completely different things. Paul takes time to ask them questions so he can understand what they believe, but at the same time so they can really understand what they believe. And then Paul is wise enough and loving enough to tell them the truth. So Paul asks them two questions. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Paul recognizes something's wrong with these men. He doesn't say what it is, but he knows something is wrong with these men. These men, they do not understand the gospel. The question really is, does the Spirit of God live in you? Does the Spirit of God live within you? That's what he's asking them. Not, do you like the Christian community? Not, are you, are you glad that your church does all these events for you? It, it's not, are you, are you entertained and are you happy? His question goes right to the heart of something we long for as people, which is to be significant. The question is not, do you like becoming a good person? Do you see the value of being involved in a nonprofit in your local community? The question is, um, did you receive the Holy Spirit? Do you know that there's a God who loves you enough to place his spirit within you? Have you fallen into the thinking that uh, presently, raising kids in church is just a good idea. That having a, a structured your weekend is, is helpful when you have something to do on a Sunday. He's really wondering what they believe because what they believe drives what they do. What you and I believe drives what we do. It's interesting here that Paul does not point them to the Holy Spirit, but he acquaints them with Jesus. He doesn't say, well, you understand Jesus, it seems like, but let me tell you about the Holy Spirit, almost like the idea of a second blessing. He says, no, 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 let me tell you about Jesus. Because when you understand Jesus and you have faith, you have the Holy Spirit. And then he asks them another question, into what were you baptized? And their answer is John's. We're baptized into John's. They were still looking forward, but they needed to look back at the perfect work of Jesus and his resurrection. I do wonder in this, what was strange to Paul? At the moment where he interacted with these people, what was strange to him that he knew, I'm going to ask these people some more questions? And it might have been the Holy Spirit working within Paul. And Paul sensing and feeling and being led that he should ask some more questions. And he does that. What is the indication of someone coming to faith? So first of all, we need to understand, uh, Paul did not have perfect wisdom in, in seeing and uh, in interacting with people and trying to read and uh, understand where they were spiritually. Uh, he did not do that perfectly. You and I will not do that perfectly either. That's actually not our job to do it perfectly. 
Our job is to just engage people along those lines, to ask them what they believe. And is it fulfilling? And what is the fulfillment they're getting from this certain belief or affection or hope? What is the indication of someone coming to Christ? First John is pretty clear. It says, uh, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And through the book of First John, we see that uh, someone knowing Jesus means that there's, uh, there's true obedience. There's not a veneer of obedience. There's a deep-rooted desire to walk in obedience. Closely tied to that, there's repentance because we cannot be perfectly obedient. But also in 1 John, there's the idea of, of true belief, that there's real faith, not perfect faith, but there's faith that's mixed with doubt and confusion, but there's faith in it. And then there's love for God and love for people, that someone's being transformed. Or you go to Mark 1.14, where Jesus says, repent and believe in the gospel, for the kingdom of God is at hand. What is a mark of someone understanding Jesus? There's repentance, and there's faith, and that's driven by the gospel. There's not repentance just for repentance' sake. In our society, in our culture, uh, there's this idea of uh, faith is good. It's good for someone to have faith in something. Repentance is also good. It's good to say you're sorry for things. But there's nothing that really guides that except what we feel we should do in those two avenues. And if that were so for Paul, when he interacted with these people, he would have left them. He would say, well, they have faith, and that's good for them. And then Paul would have went somewhere else. But Paul says, no, 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 your faith will not really do anything for you. It might give you some, some happiness. It might be like one of these great quotes on Pinterest that's really fancy. Uh, it might you know, encourage you to do something, but uh, it's not going to give you the fulfillment that you long for. So how does this relate to us as we read this? As Paul's interacting with these 12 men, they're called disciples. Um, I think there's, a really, there's really good evidence that they're really not disciples, that they just appeared to be disciples until Paul questioned them. And then it came out and realized, whoa, these people believe something completely different. They don't even know the good news of the gospel. And so we ask this question, how does it relate to me? Which I imagine this is the same question you ask uh, as you read the Bible. We read through stuff in the Bible, and we think, gosh, great. Great narrative, great story. We see God doing a lot of things. How does this relate to me? What do we do with this? I think in this situation, we can see that it's easy to live as someone who is almost a Christian. Someone who might have the outward appearance of faith, but really does not understand the gospel. They have some kind of faith, some kind of repentance, love for their neighbor, care for the people around them, but it's not driven by the great work of Jesus. They can appreciate the good faith in people and community and relationships. They're big on self-effort, self-improvement, um, being a part of a community, being a part of people. We can all applaud that, but there's really nothing deeper than that. 
And none of these things are what the church is about, the bride of Christ. None of these things. Self-effort, self-improvement, being a part of community, doing good work. This is not what the church is about. The church is about what Paul is doing. He's engaging people and he's asking them questions so they can understand who Jesus is. This is what the church is to be about. And Paul, as much as he can be, is tactful and welcoming and caring. Paul loved these 12 men enough to tell them that the object of their faith was insignificant. It was insufficient to give them what they longed for. C.S. Lewis says, I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy. The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. We need to be aware of the desire to be fulfilled fully in our daily life by our work, by relationships, by hobbies, by creativity, and to think that these things will completely fulfill us. Instead of these things that actually they are to point us to something greater. And so when we see that they're not fulfilling, especially in relationships, when we see they're not fulfilling, sometimes we just want to throw them out the window and say, well, I'm not getting the fulfillment that I thought I would get, and so I'm done. Instead of seeing, you're starting to figure it out. That's wonderful that your marriage is not fully fulfilling to you because that's not its purpose. Or your creativity or your job, whatever it is, it's not supposed to be that fulfilling. It's supposed to be a blessing. And it's hard. But it reminds us that there's something greater. And when we get ultimately discouraged and destroyed by these, Your discouragement might be that you believe that you can be fulfilled by something that is really not made to give you fulfillment. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, For God has set eternity in the hearts of men. So what we really long for, when we peel back the layers of our heart, what we really deeply long for is something more significant than this world offers. And most people will admit the futility of power and wealth and success. And we all nod and agree that that's right, those will not be fulfilling. But then we live as if power and wealth and success is really the only thing that's valuable. So we'll acknowledge it in word, But then we make decisions about our life and we make them with a completely different standard. It is our pattern to feel a need and then to look to some quick fix to meet that need. This is also formative in our faith. If all I need is a quick feel good for something to get through my morning, then that is what will be forming me and developing me as a Christian. The great thing about Christian worship is uh, it allows us to face um, when we have faith in other things beside Jesus. 
We get to face this disturbing reality within us head on and recognize the gap between what we think we love and long for and have faith in compared to what we really love and what we really have affection for. This is one thing that Christian worship does. It's God redirecting our heart to what is really valuable. Our faith and our affections are easily drawn to what results we can get immediately. I imagine this was probably what happened with these 12 men, that they really liked what John the Baptist was saying. They liked his method and his tone and the way he moved around, and maybe he was super charismatic. They didn't mind the locusts that he was eating all the time and some of the other crazy stuff about him. But they just liked him and thought, this is it. This guy's got it. And it fulfilled them at some level. And isn't it great that Paul took the step to engage these men and not to just leave them where they were, but to say, hold on. What do you really believe? What are your affections really drawn to? And I think as a community, those would be good questions for us to ask not only ourselves, but each other. What do you really long for? Because we can all, if you're here this morning, you're a Christian, you'll probably nod and say, well, I long for Jesus, because we all do, that's why we're here. Um, But there are things that we all long for that are not Jesus. And when we leave this room on a Sunday morning, we get told all these different ways that everything else in this world is fulfilling. And some of us hold on as, as tightly as we can until next Sunday, and then we're reminded, okay, tell me again what's true. Instead of maybe spending some time with this Jesus during the week. Maybe reading his word and having that form you and mold you rather than pursuing wealth and success. Maybe that would form you enough that you and I would be able to see and our affections would be turned and they'd be placed on Jesus more than just the idea of faith. Because just because you have faith, that really doesn't mean anything. It really is, what is the object of your faith? And this morning, we're reminded of our object of faith in, the, in Christianity, and it's Jesus. And then we get to come to this table to be reminded, Jesus is the one that will fulfill us. And so why don't you pray with me as we prepare our hearts to come and receive and be reminded that it is Jesus who fulfills us. And our hearts would be redirected toward him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have given us what is true. And you tell us Uh, about Jesus in your word, and it is very clear, and it is very simple. And we also thank you for the community of believers that you have surrounded us with that also tell us what's true. We pray this morning that our affections, our love, our faith would be redirected, and they would be pointed toward you. 
we pray that we would know that you are the one who is ultimately fulfilling. And you'd walk us through the seasons of struggling with faith and struggling with sin. And you would remind us who Jesus is and who he has made us to be as his children, as children of God. In his name we pray. Amen.